Probably one of the most familiar sounds from the 1990s is this message. That's not the sound I was looking for. <laughs> Thank you, tech team. Yes. Can you play that one more time? I don't know if they got it. Yes. You guys remember that? Yeah, I remember how cool email was, right, right, right? Well, so if you're older, you remember that. I remember the first time I ever saw and sent an email message. I was like 22. I was a forklift operator for Time Life Video, and, and Marty called me on the radio, so I drove over on my machine, and there was this computer terminal in the middle of the warehouse like, Rick do you see this right here? And I'm standing on my, uh, I, was, I was operating, uh, and it doesn't matter what I was operating, but I'm on my machine, and I'm like, yeah. He says, dude, this just came from our warehouse in Florida now. Dude, I'm going to type back. Watch this. I got the message. And then a moment later, a response came back in, and we're like, whoa, the future is here. Email. I know email hasn't been cool for a long time. I get that. I get that. But it was such an exciting thing to get a message, and the way it was delivered to us was so novel, it just blew our minds. Well, things have come full circle. What's really cool now? Regular mail, right? Actually getting old-fashioned mail. Now, I know it depends, like if it's bills or coupons or ads, you're kind of, meh, whatever, right? And then up the chain are those great uh, family update letters we send at the at Christmas time or whatever. But what's the gold standard? I mean, I don't even know if anyone gets these anymore. Who's gotten a handwritten letter this year? A couple of you, all right? I mean, when you get that, that's like beautiful that somebody would actually write, think of you, and write a letter. Well, friends, this morning, we're going to be studying a very unique letter. We're starting a study of a very unique letter, the letter of John's or of Jesus's revelation. Now, just so you know, most of you understand that the majority of the Bible or the majority of the New Testament are themselves letters. 22 of the 27 what we call books are, in fact, letters, letters to individuals, letters to churches. But Revelation is a unique letter. It's a unique letter for three reasons. Number one, it is a letter that Jesus is actually the author of. Now, in one sense, you could make the case that Jesus is the author of the entire Bible, being that he is God. But in the New Testament, the New Testament, the, the letters of the New Testament were written by apostles who, according to Luke chapter 13, or John chapter 13 and Luke chapter 6, they were they were letters authorized by Jesus. There were apostles who wrote these letters that were authorized by Jesus, and as 2 Peter tells us, who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So in one sense, you could say, yes, Jesus wrote the, the, the New Testament, the Bible, but the New Testament letters themselves were written by apostles as they were inspired by the Spirit of God. Revelation is unique because as chapter 1, verse 1 says right out of the gate, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus, this is his message to us, right? For those of you who are in our Greek class, this is what you call an objective genitive. It is, it is Jesus' message that he's giving to us. In one sense, you could say it's, it's also revealing Jesus to us, in which case it's a subjective genitive, but really what's going on is this is Jesus' message to you and I, to the church. It is not Matthew or Mark or Luke recalling the things that Jesus had said and his events. 
It is Jesus himself saying, I have a message. This is the message I want you to give. So it's unique in that way. It's the only New Testament letter that we could say Jesus says, these are the words I want you to give to them directly. The second reason that Revelation is unique is Revelation addresses humanity in a way that no other New Testament book does. You can say that all the letters of the, the New Testament were written for us, but Revelation is written to us. There's a difference. All the New Testament letters were written for us, but they weren't written to us in the way Revelation is. What do I mean by that? When we read the New Testament, we read the Bible, it certainly benefits us, the life situations that the, the men and women of the early churches endured and struggled. They are relatively the same as ours in that the, heart, the human heart is the same. The situations may be different, but that's all window dressing. What the Corinthians experience, what the Romans experience, we experience the same kinds of things. So while the, re- the, the letters are written for our benefit, they weren't written directly to us, but Revelation was written to us in a very unique way. In that the message of Revelation, it is not addressed to just the, the first century church or an individual, but to all of humanity. Asians, Africans, Slavs, Europeans, wealthy, poor, educated, uneducated, young, old. This is a message that Jesus wants all of us to get, and so it's written to us. As we'll see, it's also written to a historical point, but unlike other books of the New Testament, it's very conscious that it's written to go beyond that historical point. So Revelation is unique in that Jesus is the author in a way unlike all the other New Testament letters, and it addresses all of humanity directly. And then third and finally, Revelation is a unique letter in that it puts an exclamation point on all that the Old Testament and New Testament has taught. In other words, if you didn't get anything from Genesis all the way up through Jude, it's as if Revelation is saying, then you're going to get it here because here is the message. This is the thing you need to know and the thing to respond to. So these three reasons are actually going to make up um, the questions we're going to try to answer this morning, and this is that. What kind of letter is this? What is the message of this letter, and who is the writer of this letter? Now, just as a point of methodology, uh, there's a lot of crazy stuff in Revelation, right? I mean, just, if, you just, if you read ahead like I hope you do, at the bottom of your bulletin, we tell you every week the passage we're going to study next week. So next week, you should know the text we're going to look at. I hope you read it ahead of time so that you show up prepared to engage it more. Uh, that just helps you learn better. And you're going to realize if you did that this week, there's some crazy things. I am going to only address the crazy things as they pertain directly to the main point that John is trying to make in that section we study. In other words, the point of the text should always be the point of the sermon. As interesting as other things might be, if they're not pushing forward the main point, it's going to end up on the cutting room floor. And there's going to be a lot of things like that. So now, for those of you who just have to know i got to know, what are these seven spirits, right? You can talk to me after the service. I'll try to answer them as best I can. But in terms of making use of our time to edify you, I don't want this to be a lecture in trying to figure out the details. Remember, Revelation's not a puzzle to figure out as much as it is a picture to be inspired by. So I'm just going to tell you, it's not because I don't want to address those things, but I want to get the point of the text to be the point of the sermon. And if you absolutely have to know, 
then you can talk to me after the service. That's how I'm going to handle that. So with that, let me just read to you a few verses to refresh our memories. Revelation chapter 1, I'm going to read the first few verses. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Let's look at this. What kind of a letter is this that we are looking at? What kind of letter is Revelation? Well, it's three things. We're going to look at them one at a time. Number one, it's a symbolic letter. It's an encouraging letter. And it's a reminder, it's a reminder letter to us. Let's talk about the first one because it's really important. It is a symbolic letter. The very first, the very first three verses of Revelation give us a tip-off as to how we are begin to understand this book. The very first word, two words, the revelation in Greek, the apocalypse, simply means a disclosure, a revealing revelation. It's a disclosure. Verse 3 tells us that it is a prophecy as well. A prophecy usually is the utterance, an individual's utterance interpreting the divine will. And this has happened in those days in secular culture. You, you had prophecies all the time. So this isn't a particularly Christian thing. Prophecy simply means to, give a, to, to explain, to interpret the divine will. And then we see in verse 1, we see the word that it is made known via these symbols. We see in English here, he made it known. In the Greek, it is the word simeon, which is common to designate, or the family group to designate miracles in the Gospels, signs and miracles. Here's the point. We have a kind of coming together of the three most unusual terms that talk about revelation, apocalypse, signs and wonders, right in the first three verses. So what John is saying through Jesus, revelation is Jesus interpreting God's divine will for humanity through the mean of symbols, through symbols. 
Let me say that again. The book of Revelation is Jesus interpreting for us via symbols God's plans and purposes for humanity. This is really important to understand. It's important to understand that the way God is revealing to us, or the way Jesus is revealing to us God's plan is through symbolic language. And that's important because if you try to read Revelation literally, you're going to get really confused. You're going to get confused. Now, I understand why maybe you have or you've grown up reading Revelation and taking much of it as literal because as a general rule, when you read literature, the rule is take it literally unless there's reason to interpret it figuratively or symbolically because that's just how we should function. That's a rule of literature, whether it's the Bible or other things. But when it comes to material like Revelation, that's apocalyptic material, prophecy, that rule is almost reversed. You read it symbolically unless there's clear indication that you need to interpret this literally. Now, why would God do this? Why, why would God kind of flip the script? Because by and large, that's the way we interpret the Gospels and the Epistles, the bulk of the New Testament, literally, and then we interpret it figuratively or symbolically only when necessary. Why flip the script on a book that he's trying to communicate to all humanity? Why would he say it symbolically unless you have to take it literally or figuratively? Well, there's two possible reasons. One, we see this in Jesus' ministry of when he talked, when his disciples asked him, why do you speak in parables? Parables and, and, and symbolism function in the same kind of way. They serve at one time to reveal and illuminate to those who really want to know, and at another time, at the same time, to confuse and to hide from those who really don't care. And so parables and symbolism functions in the same kind of way. That's what Jesus says, is to reveal the truths to the kingdom and to keep hidden those things, those very same things. So then the argument would be, but if God's point is all humanity to understand this book, why use symbols? Because that could be confusing. And, that's, and that, this is exactly the point. Revelation has three points of contact. Like most New Testament epistles, like most books of the Bible, they have, which have two points of contact, Revelation and prophecy and apocalyptic literature have three, especially this book. One is the original context, right, to the seven churches. It's, after all, a letter to those seven churches, those real people. The other point of contact that this particular book has is the final crisis. God is revealing all that's going to take place. But the third point of contact is whatever time individuals who are reading this happen to exist in. That's a huge amount of audience there in every culture and language. What can communicate most accurately, most powerfully that language, these concepts? It's going to be symbolism. Symbolism is much better at carrying concepts, universal concepts, than actual concrete language can do. Let me give you evidence of that. So let me say this again. The reason God is making this important book so fueled by symbolism is that symbols carry conceptual weight much broader than concrete language does. Here's the proof. Do I need to tell you what's going on in these faces? If you were from Japan or Africa, there's a good chance you know, even though we don't speak the same language, you know what's going on in these faces. What's this bottom left one? What's the emotion there? Did I hear someone say happy? 
<laughs> Anger, clear. What about the second one to the right that's green? Gonna throw up pretty soon, right? The one above that to the left? Pretty happy. What about the other weird one to the right of that? Mind blown. I've never shown you any of those. We've never talked about them, right? Yet you all know what they are, and here's the power of these. The reason we use them so much is because regardless, they, they communicate an emotion that even words themselves cannot do accurately. Furthermore, it doesn't matter what country or culture or kind of time you live in, and, and you're going to get that. You're going to understand those symbols. Now, now, to be honest, as long as certain conceptual concepts are shared, you get it, right? Because like, if you don't know what a face is, you can't interpret that, but, but who doesn't know what a face is? You get what I'm saying, right? So while they're universal, it does draw upon some similarities, but very little, yet it communicates so much. And it doesn't matter anything that's going on, you know what that means. That happy face, a thousand years from now, someone sees it, they're going to say, it's a, happy, it's a happy face, right? You get what I'm saying. Here's even more evidence. Yes, you know what that is, right? What is that? Ikea instructions. <laughs> That's what that is. They're genius. It doesn't matter what country I'm in, what language I speak or don't speak, we can all put together their bookshelves, right? So look at the top left. What is that saying? Don't be an idiot, right? This is too heavy. Don't carry this. What should you do? You get a buddy and you have a good time, right? And it goes on and on. Now, the, the on, there's only two symbols here that, that, are, that are rooted his, kind of like in, in a context. That's the question mark. Uh, you, you have to know kind of at least some concept of an English question mark and the word Ikea, right? And for you younger people, he's holding a phone. That, that thing is a cord, okay? <laughs> but other than that, we all get and understand what is happening here. You see, symbols are a mixture. They're, they're a mixture of imagination and reality that communicates something more than the, the object by itself can. And so by bringing them together, you can communicate so much more. Let's unpack that, for example. So, again, what is this, what is this symbol saying? Uh, I'm going to hurl, right? Right? This is, right? We pretty much all agree, right? If I take away the green from that, if I take the green away... This symbol could mean, I got gas, right? I'm <laughs> holding it in, right? If I take away the curve features, what could this symbol mean? If I just have a regular face, what's the symbol mean? I could be green with envy. But the combination of the green and the characteristic features clearly communicate. Now, here's my point. We don't ever turn this shade of green. We don't ever have such curved feature lines, but we do have shades of skin tone. We do have feature lines, but in, in kind of bringing them together, we're communicating a clear message that separately might be confusing or could be more misinterpreted in other ways. Symbols properly used carry a lot, a lot of conceptual ideas. Language does something very similar, friends. When someone tells you, the sun's in my eyes, do you panic because their head's going to melt? The sun's in your eyes, oh my gosh. No, you know exactly what they mean. If someone tells you, 
hey, you've, you've been on my mind a lot. Do you apologize because you gave him a headache? Right? Oh, that was pretty heavy. I'm on your mind. No, you get the idea. See, we live in a world, friends, of, of ideas, concepts, symbols, language, figures of speech, metaphor that is so rich. And that is why this particular book is so written, and poetry and prophecy so written heavy on symbolism. It's not because you take it less serious, but because it can communicate so much more than the one or two objects might on their own. All you need is a general understanding, a core concept that then any culture can then map onto its meaning and understanding of that same symbol. We all get that. Revelation does this very beautifully. And so we have symbols throughout the book. The dragon, the beast, the prostitute, even issues, things like numbers or earthquakes. Again, symbols are not all make-believe. They're rooted in reality. They're rooted in things we understand, but they're, they're I don't want to say characterized or cartoonized, but they're, they're highlighted to communicate something more. And we aren't intended to read it as a literal prostitute, as a literal dragon. That doesn't make it any less important. It actually heightens it even more. We just have to understand what it's actually trying to communicate. And so Revelation is a symbolic letter. But it's also an encouraging letter. It's a very encouraging letter. Verse 3 says, blessed are you when you read it. Blessed are you when you hear it. Blessed are you when you keep it. Verse 4, that there's, there's grace to you and peace. The reason we can have peace from God is because He gave us grace. Don't forget that. Then in verse 5, that He loves us and has freed us at great cost to Himself. Right? He freed us at great cost to Himself, His own death. And then verse 6, it speaks of a people and a place and a purpose. He made us a kingdom. That's both a place and a people. It's your identity. And he gives us purpose. He makes us priests to his God and Father. What do priests do? We represent the people to the, de the deity, right, in our case, and to the Lord. And we represent the Lord to the people. That is what we do. We are a people, we are a place, we have a purpose, we have an identity, we have a job. That's who John's writing to. Are we doing that, right? Are you doing that? Yeah, we want to jump in and talk about all the juicy details, but you first got to ask, am I a kingdom? Am I a people? Am I a place? Am I serving my purpose as his priest, representing the world to God in prayer, bringing the needs of the world, my family, my friends, to the Lord, and representing God to my place? It's an encouraging letter. That is us. That's our identity. That's our, that's our purpose and place. But it's also a reminder. So it's a symbolic letter. It's an encouraging letter, but it's also a bit of a reminder. Look at verse 9. John says that I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom. Wow, friends, that, that, that's a good reminder. That the fellowship of the saints, if you are a Christian is a fellowship of tribulation and kingdom. And they're, they're both together, this side of heaven. Friends, this side of heaven, there, there is no crown without a cross. There is no gain without pain. There is no triumph without tragedy. There will be both, this side of heaven. 
And John is reminding us of that. Christianity, friends, is not about kingdom, crown, and triumph alone. It's tragedy. It's tribulation. It's pain. I'm sorry if someone told you differently. Let the Word of God straighten that out. But we are partners together, and there is hope, great hope, and that's what John wants to talk about. And that's why he calls us, by the way, you see that in verse 9, to endure. By the way, I don't know if you caught that. John says, I'm on this island because of the testimony of the Lord. I basically am on a penal colony because, uh, because of Jesus Christ. So he knows what he's talking about. So that's what, it, that, that's what the message is. Now, what the question, second question is, what is the message of this letter? We see it very clearly in verses 7 and 8. Revelation is a letter to us, and Jesus has big news that he wants us clear about right there in verse 7. Behold, he is coming. Even if it's in symbolic language, the main message is not hard to grasp. It is clear. You know, there's a, there's a uh, kind of a, an apocryphal story about some seminary students playing basketball in a courtside, the, one of the school, the school janitor just reading his Bible. And so one day as they're walking off the court, we just ask the janitor, what are you reading? He says, well, I'm reading the book of Revelation. And the seminary student says, whoa, that's, that's heavy duty. You know, that's hard to interpret. That's the most difficult genre. Apocalypse is really hard. I mean, do you understand it? And the janitor responds, well, yeah. I mean, it's easy enough to understand. So these, you know, seminary students go, well, then what's it mean? Well, the janitor says, everything's okay. God wins. And that's the, that's the message, right? At the end of the day, that is the message of what Revelation is saying. Everything will be okay. God wins. Verse 7, behold, He is coming. Friends, if you're the kind of person that marks up your Bible, I want you to highlight, underline, circle, whatever you want to do, that first phrase in verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And do the same with the last two words in that verse, the Almighty. Right? While you're at it, uh, look at that repeated, verse, uh, repeated phrase in verse 4 and verse 8, who is and who was and who is to come. Friends, did you just all those words in just two verses? He's coming. The Alpha and the Omega, in case you didn't know who, who, who he was, in case you don't know what that means, he's the Almighty. And in case that's not enough, he's the one who was, who is, and is to come. What do all these expressions communicate? Hope. They communicate hope. They communicate certainty. They communicate supremacy. The Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the Almighty, and I am coming. Yeah, he was right. Everything's going to be okay because this is who's coming. Look at verse 19 because verse 19 is really important. Some people see, see it as, as the interpretive key to the book of Revelation. Jesus says, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are yet to take place after this. And so a lot of uh, scholars will see that this is, this is a tip-off of that Revelation is trying to un help us understand our events and the future and what's going on. And so I think it's helpful for you to see this next slide I want to show you 
because you may fall somewhere in there or you may not have a place at all, and so we want to create categories for you. Throughout the history of the church, I'm not going to take too much time on this, but Revelation has been viewed in four different ways. There's the preterist, and that just simply means past, okay? Preterist means past. There was a view that uh, the, the, the book of Revelation was fully fulfilled roughly with the very exception of the very end of the book uh, before the fall of the, or the, before the Roman, end of the Roman Empire, but particularly the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. So they say everything that's taking place in here already took place, okay? Um, now the problem with that is then that means this book really has no relevance for the majority of humanity who, who's ever read it, right? Now I appreciate what we can appreciate is they take seriously the actual message written to the seven churches. But the problem, if, if it was fulfilled in AD 70, then what's the point in reading it? And why would God say there's a blessing on all who read it, right? And so what do we deal with those end sections? Now, keep in mind, if you were here last week, we talked about that major outline of Revelation. There's five parts to it, right? Chapter one, part one, we're dealing with this morning. Part two is chapters two and three, the message to the churches. Uh, part part one, part two, part three is, is God, chapters four and five, and then chapter six through 18, I call it the global, eternal, temporal, I'm not sure what, war that we're all engaged in. So the preterists would say that chapters six through 18 have all taken place, and the only thing left to be fulfilled is at the very end, chapters 19 and 22. Another people, group of people, we call it the futurist view, and by and large, this is what a lot of evangelicals hold to, that that and I appreciate they take seriously the end crisis that Revelation's talking about, that something's going to come at the end. The problem is they really don't know how that, that Revelation fits into the rest of human history by and large. So for the majority of human history, except for those who live at the very end, this book's kind of pointless, just confusing. You just have to wait for another generation to figure it out, all right? The historicist view views and so, so what I'm talking about is chap, for the futurist, chapter 6 through 18, or really 6 through the end of the book, is all at the end of the ages, so to speak. The historicist would say, okay, that section chapter 6 through 18, that's chronologically revealing to us all the events of history as it's unfolding. And so they'll see in those, in those chapters the rise of Islam. They'll see the Reformation and the rediscovery of the gospel. They might even see things like the Two Towers and the 9-11 and all those kinds of things. Now, there's a huge problem with that. Now, what, what I can't appreciate about that is they're seeing that Revelation has application to all history, right? The problem with that is that's only history if you're European. Why can't that history be the African history or Asian history of unfolding events? Do you see the problem here, right? So, so that's actually probably the, the weakest view. And then there's the idealist view, and that's the view that I believe is correct, and that's the view that I hold. I guess I'm a bit of an idealist. The, the idea here is that the symbolism of Revelation, that, that all of Revelation, chapter 6 through 18 as well, is applying throughout history in successive fulfillments and repeated embodiments, that there's a message for the entire church that will then, there is a, a real thing coming at the end, just as there was a historical context at the beginning, but it's unfolding throughout all of humanity's history, not necessarily in world events that we associate with European or Western events, but events in Christians' lives throughout and that's the view that I hold, because I think it makes best sense of what we're reading in the book. I'll unpack that much later as we jump into chapter 6. I just think it's important for you to know and for you to think about, how do I think of this book? 
How do I think of the words of this prophecy? You see, friends, in a very real sense, Revelation is a historical, spiritual reality roadmap of the great warfare, the great cosmic conflict that we saw a skirmish of in the book of Esther. It is a roadmap explaining how all of history from the time of John's day until the culmination when Jesus comes back and every day in between, including today, how all that plays itself out. Revelation is a letter that offers us a peek into the future, but also a peek into the present. It pulls the curtain back of reality and lets us see the reality that's really real behind the reality we inhabit. That's what Revelation is trying to get us to understand. It's trying to show us that all that we've been taught in the Old Testament and the New Testament, how it's played out in this massive cosmic conflict of the ages and what that looks like in the day-to-day grind of our lives, how our allegiance to the Lordship of Christ how our participation and love for the body of Christ, the church, how our pursuit of holiness, how the fruit of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, how all that works out in our daily lives in God's cosmic plan. That's what Revelation is trying to get us to to understand. And so it may not be as fantastical as you may have imagined, but trust me, it's going to be a lot more applicable than you've ever dreamed as we study this. So, we know what kind of message it is. We know what the message is. Now, who is the writer of this letter? Now, on one hand, you can say, duh, you just said it. it was Jesus. Yes, I get that. But this is a Jesus unlike we have seen before. Let's get back to the text. Pick it up at verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Stop there. Friends, John's vision of Jesus here is a lot like Daniel's vision of God in Daniel chapter 7. Let me show you these slides. I want to compare them to you. This is what we just read. He sees a son of man. He's got white hair like white wool, like snow. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His voice like the roar of many waters. Daniel 7. White as he's talking about the ancient of days, his clothing is white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like fiery flames a few verses later, and he realizes there's one that's coming like the Son of Man that's presented to the ancient of days. Now, here's the thing that's a bit confusing. I was looking at this this past week. In Revelation, the way, the way Jesus looks in Revelation is the way God looks in Daniel 7. And, and there's a lot of things you notice. The Son of Man is in Daniel 7. The Son of Man's in Revelation. There's the, his hair, there's, there's fire, there's, there's sun shining, there's all this kind of imagery. And you ask, well, what is going on here? What is happening in Revelation? And, and as you go back, you're reading about these seven lampstands and seven stars. Uh, what is happening, friends? Symbolism. 
Symbolism everywhere. Friends, Revelation is like a raging rapids river after all the tributaries have dumped into it. So what you have in Revelation is all the tributaries of of, uh, uh, Isaiah and Zechariah and Ezekiel and Daniel and the, the prophetic Psalms that are all talking about humanity, history, and prophecy, all dumping into this current, and it's all churning together. And the, the whole is greater than its parts. And guess what I, what I guess I'm saying is that you start to lose track because the symbolism, the beauty of symbolism is also the difficulty of it. What John and Daniel are trying to communicate is they're looking on the Godhead, and they don't even have categories for this. Notice how often they use words like like and appearance of, the image of, like this. They can't even explain this. And so John is seeing the same vision that Daniel is kind of seeing. And keep in mind, friends, John, who knew Jesus best, what's his response? He collapses. He he collapses as though dead. When he sees Jesus, that's his response. Now, he's seen Jesus, but he apparently has not seen Jesus. John was with Jesus in his ministry of Galilee. John saw Jesus do miracles. John saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. John saw Jesus on the cross. He saw him when he was raised from the grave. He saw Jesus, but when he sees Jesus, dude, he's laid out. You can imagine John probably just thinking, what, is this Jesus? I have no idea because I, I, I can't even compute this. Friends, we tend to have a hard time with the full picture of Jesus, don't we? And I get it to some degree, but we either try to to, to domesticate him, right? Or we might try to idolize him. Idolize Jesus, how can you do that? Yeah, you, you make him something he actually isn't. Or you dismiss him, or you ignore him. You treat him with cool disinterest or maybe academic curiosity, because to, to bring the two together, there's, it's hard to do that. So are you going to settle for Jesus, my homeboy, or my, my, my boss is a Jewish carpenter, or are you going to ignore him entirely? And you see John just trying to wrestle with the reality that this Jesus is the Jesus of history and glory, and I have never known him before, and here I am seeing him. And he collapses. You could say that John was Jesus' best friend on earth, right? If you read the gospel narratives, that's pretty clear. But John has never understood him like he's understanding him now. But friends, we have to combine Jesus. We, we can't domesticate him. You know, he's, he's Jesus. He's, it's okay. He loves me. All that kind of, he's that hippie beatnik kind of guy. You know, he's cool. He's loving and all that. And we, we can't dismiss him or ignore him. And as Christians, we can't ignore Jesus. But we can't do that. We have to deal with who he is, this, this Jesus of history and glory that we're seeing here in Revelation. The Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. The one who was, who is, and is to come. But notice what he says to John as soon as John drops as though he's dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys to death and Hades. 
I love that. Do you think you have to worry about the craziness in the world? Do you think you have to worry about the political unrest, the social disturbances? Mm-mm. I have the keys to death and Hades, and you don't have to fear. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, friends, we'll get into the number seven in a little bit, a little bit later on. For now, I just want you to know that it is, it is a symbol. It is symbolic. It is symbol, a symbolic of completion, of entirety, of rest. The seven days of creation, seven days in a week, the jubilee year on the 50th year is because seven times seven is the completion and you rest on the 50th year. Seven is very symbolic of completion and entirety. It happened, that word showed up 11 times in this chapter if you were paying attention. Revelation is a complete message for the complete church, not just the seven churches here. They're they're there to represent all the churches. It's a complete message for a complete church, and Jesus is completely among him. Did you notice where he was standing when he saw Jesus? The seven lampstands, and he was in the midst. He was with the churches of Ephesus and Smyrna, Thyatira, Sardis, just like he's the church with the church in Laguna Hills, Mission Viejo, San Clemente, everywhere else. He is among his churches with complete knowledge. He knows our pain. He knows our fear. He knows our concerns. He knows our anxieties. He knows our afflictions, and he's completely in the midst of it all. He says, fear not, because I'm the one that holds death in Hades. Nothing's going to happen unless I let it happen, and I'm bringing to bear my plan. And he has a message for them. He has a message for us, and he's coming back. It means tribulation, but it also means kingdom. Take confidence. And as he unfolds his message to the seven churches, which will begin next week, that message was not just for them, but it's for us as well. Let's pray that we have ears to hear what the Spirit says. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for this amazing book. It's just just scratching the tip of the iceberg. And Father, we, we want to bow in humility, recognizing that there are things we're just not going to be able to figure out the way we want to in its entirety, but we get the main thrust. You are the Alpha and the Omega. You are the Almighty. And we would be fools to not bend the knee in humility and worship. So, Father, would you help us? Would you help us to worship the Son in a way maybe we haven't before this study? That we would grow in our confidence that all things will be okay because you are on the throne. And would you help us grow in love for the gospel message that you have entrusted to us, your kingdom, your people, your priests, so we might serve you well and serve this world that you love so well in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.cccLH.org.